0: Morning, Element Church. I'm so glad to be here with you, and uh, thank you for that kind introduction, Jeff. And uh, I really feel like all I need to do is close in prayer. I mean, after that time of worship, haven't we done what we came here to do? Wow! Uh, I had the huge privilege of taking uh, Jeff and Sabrina to uh, to Columbia, as he said. Uh, I worked with a lot of pastors. It is rare you find one with this level of passion, energy, and drive. And Sabrina has probably the most compassionate heart of anyone I've ever met. You know how lucky you are to have them, right? Yeah. Thank you so, so much. What a, what a privilege to be here. Um, I was looking forward to walking in here. This is one of my first times ever to here. And uh, to, to listen to them talk about you, uh, I was expecting everybody here to be like 10 feet tall, able to walk on water and leap buildings in a single bound. Turns out n- none of that is true. Uh, but what I do see is exactly what they described a very loving community. And I can sense that just by standing here with you and worshiping with you the last few minutes. And I can see that children matter in this place. I got a tour of your children's facilities. Those heroes who right this minute are building the kingdom of God. Wow. And uh, so I'm excited to be uh, a part. I think any child who walks through the front doors of Element Church is a blessed child. And I thank you for all of you who are are a part of that. So I feel right at home. I love being in places where children uh, matter. Uh, you have to understand that normally when I'm out speaking, I don't get this kind of friendly audience. Usually I'm in a conference somewhere, and I'm, uh, I'm speaking to uh, missiologists and to mission executives and to theologians and to uh, seminary professors, and I can look at them as, as I start, and I can tell by their body language, they're like, really? We've gathered here to talk about What? children? Really? Is there anything I don't know about children? And I have to go through my usual stuff. I've got to give them the statistics of why children matter. I've got to give them the strategies for reaching children. I've got to give them the the scriptural mandate for reaching children. And if I look at them and I can see I haven't completely got through to them, then I go straight to their egos. And I say, by the way, Everyone in this room deserves an honorary doctorate in this field. You are all child development experts. And they sit up a little sit. They're like, whoa, okay, I, that sounds good to me. I said, let's do a little research. How many of you have ever been a child? <laughs> yeah. All you ever did for 18 years was be a child. I've never met anyone who either isn't a child or was a child. And so I have to go after them with that, uh, moving on their honorary doctorate. Uh, That's, by the way, all of you, uh, that's 9,500,000 minutes that you did nothing but be a child if you are 18 or over. And so you can't sit there and say, children just aren't my thing. I'm not comfortable around them. I'm like, no, shut up. If (laughs) If you are about building the kingdom of God, then you are... about children by definition. Missiologists know that 85% of people who give their lives to Jesus do it while they are children between the ages of 4 and 14. Here we are, half the world, at the prime time to be brought to their Heavenly Father. You would think that missions around the world would be all over that. That's, I mean, is there anything more strategic than that? No. It's a rare... Mission organization that spends more than 10% of its budgeting and efforts on reaching children for Christ. 10%. You think, well, the church surely does better. I mean, every other person running through the hallways is a child. We must do better. No, Element, you are a very unusual church. It is a rare church in America that spends more than 15% of its budget on reaching the little ones. I don't know about you, I'm not a rocket scientist. But we are not going to build the kingdom of God until we have a paradigm shift. We've got to think differently. Well, today's message, if I had a a, a message title, it would be something like, the least of these matters most. You know, all through all history, 2,000 years, ever since the disciples were shooing the children away from Jesus, so important grown-up stuff could go on. The church has behaved across the world with its budget, with its strategies, with its priorities as if Jesus in Matthew 25, that great message about that huge judgment that's coming, as if he inadvertently skipped a word, as if he must have meant to say, oh, whatever you do to one of the least important of these. But he didn't. He knew exactly what he was saying. He was a master rabbi. And when he said the least of these, which you've done, you've done it unto me, he meant the poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable, the forgotten, everybody, by the way, who he liked to hang out with. That's who Jesus loved. But clearly by the least of these, he meant the youngest, the weakest, uh, the smallest among us. He clearly meant Whenever you do something for someone who can't speak up for themselves, who can't protect themselves, who can't care for themselves, those who are least able to thank you, reward you, repay you, Jesus says in Matthew 25, Then, mysteriously and wonderfully, that was me. You did that on, be, on my behalf, but also you did that to me. So Jesus will say, and this is clearly... Um, from his own mouth, it's red letters in my Bible. He spoke this. He said, "Clearly, uh, when you blessed them, you blessed me." So, you teachers who have that—I got two of my daughter's teachers—that little boy that is driving you nuts, one day to your great surprise, Jesus is going to say, "You know what? That was me." And I think that officer who protected that little girl is going to hear from Jesus, "Thank you for saving. That was me that you guarded." Grandma, the tears that you wiped from that chubby little cheek, those were my tears. Dad, I felt that long overdue hug. And you who sponsored children, yeah, I tasted that cup of cold water that you provided through your love reaching out all the way across the world. And that judgment day that Jesus is describing in Matthew 25 uh, is going to happen. It is just Around the corner, and we are going to have some amazing surprises. If you remember that story, the sheep who had done these good things were like, When did we ever see you like that? We didn't know that was you. Well, Jesus is going to say there's some surprises because all of a sudden we're going to understand that the kingdom of God that we belong to, those of us who are following Christ, is completely upside down from the kingdom in which we find ourselves right now. Upside down, backwards, inside out you got to understand that in the kingdom of our God, the first are last, and the last are first. Can you imagine how that would change things in our evening news? The weak are strong, and the strong are weak. The poor are often the rich in the kingdom of God. It's often the rich who are the poor. Beauty is on the inside. It is not on the outside. I'm so sorry, Hollywood. Got that wrong. Surrender is what leads to victory. And we will discover in that moment, standing before the Lord among the nations of the earth, that this world, although it felt like home, this was not home. This was just a campsite, just a short span of time that we, that we spent here. Nothing that you have in your house do you own. That's, none of that is yours. We'll understand that in that day. Everything you have is on a short-term loan. From God. I know this to be true because I rent rent a cars all the time. And I don't know about you, but I have never washed a rent a car. Why not? It's not mine, and I'm not going to use it that long. That's how we ought to be looking at our world, and we will at that time. We're going to discover at that moment what was important down here and what wasn't important. And we're going to discover we had it all wrong. Even worse, we're going to discover who was important down here and who wasn't important down here. Then, with the veil removed and the dark glass gone, we are all going to see from the kingdom's perspective that the little were big. And those of you who have invested in little children, those of you who blessed the children of your own church right here, Are in for tremendous joy because you are going to understand that you ministered literally to Jesus and you were engaged at the very center of the priorities of the kingdom of God. That day is coming and I'm so happy for you uh, that it is. Let me tell you why I care. I've discovered that most people don't care what you know until they know why you care. And uh, I'm going to take a few moments uh, to tell you why on earth. Would I care about children? And why would I give 40 years of my life? Proverbs 31 8 says, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. And that's why I wrote my book, Too Small to Ignore, and, and Just a Minute, and why I've given my life to ministry. My battle for children, looking at me, you know this is true, began a long, long time ago. I believe it began when uh, God was still knitting me in my mama's womb to become whoever I was going to become. I'm pretty sure the angels gathered around at my birth, took one look and said, well, he is as cute as a button. Look at him. But he's not a rocket scientist, obviously. We're going to have to do something to, uh, to make it clear uh, what he's to do with his life. And so I was, um, I was born uh, into the Ken and Marge Stafford family. You have to understand Ken and Marge Stafford were from Denver, Colorado. Um, Ken was a very, very shy farm boy. And Marge, his, uh, his childhood sweetheart and then his high school love, uh, was the exact opposite. She was the socialite. She was the cheerleader at West High School in Denver. These two opposites would never have met had it not been for a church called Judson Memorial Baptist Church, where they happened to go all the way through their childhoods. And you can imagine Judson Memorial Baptist Church. It was very missions-focused. So they used to sit in the back, and they would listen to this parade of missionaries come through, and they would tell these wild, scary stories. They'd roll out their python skins. They would hold up their jar of scorpions from Africa. And Ken and Marge would look at each other, nudge each other, and say, not us. No, 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 that's not for us. Their prayer was, Lord, please, please, Do not call us to be missionaries. And if you call us to be missionaries, come on, please, not Africa. So long story short, I was born into a missionary family assigned to Africa. (laughs) Be careful what you pray for. And not just Africa. I mean, there are wonderful places around Africa, uh, but a hot, desolate, dusty outpost in the country of the Ivory Coast on the very edge of the Sahara Desert. A typical day where I grew up was 120 degrees. It was like opening the oven to see if the cookies are done. (laughs) Of hot air if you went outside. Uh, It was a remote place, like I said. We had only one dirt road. It was only two ruts going across the savannah. Uh, We had no electricity, uh, consequently no fan, even in that heat, no air conditioning, no television, no refrigerator. Uh, My mom, I remember, used to stand at the kitchen sink looking out across the shivering sands of the Sahara Desert, and she would blow her hair out of her face, sweat drip off her nose, and this city girl would say, I may not have much, but at least I have one luxury. I have running water. Wes... Run and get some water. That would be, I'd be out to the well and back getting water for mom. I, I was the running water in our house. We had no uh, no indoor plumbing. Um, we used an outhouse from here to the door. The scariest thirty yards on the planet. There were things that could literally kill you between the house and the uh, and the outhouse. You learned to stomp your feet as you went out there to put a tremor on the ground to scare the uh, whatever goes bumping the night out there uh, I was a typical missionary child uh, ran around barefoot most of the time in the village had a slingshot around my neck almost all the time I was skinny as a rail I had uh, I spoke four languages every day uh, English French and, and and two African languages but none of them really very well I was uh, sick often I um, Our nearest hospital was a day drive away. It was 100 miles, but it took you all day to drive 100 miles at that time. I nearly died about six times during my childhood. Malaria was one of the major killers, and I took quinine pills every day and still got it several times a year. Closest I ever came to death, ants, army ants. These nasty critters would be four-inch stream of them, miles long. You could see them coming from a distance. We would run out there and try to burn them with a torch to get them to turn and go somewhere else. Otherwise, you just had to abandon your house. They would take over everything. We slept with our bedposts in cans of kerosene to keep the ants off of us. But one night uh, in the the hottest of the season, I kicked my sheet off and uh, the ants came that night and they climbed up the sheet And they were all over me before I realized that there was anything on me. One went across my cheek, thought it was a mosquito, slapped it. That was some sort of invisible signal to this ant kingdom uh, that this is time to bite. And so hundreds of them bit at once. And they they would pinch and, and they wouldn't let go. And they would also inject poison. So I swelled up like the Michelin man. And uh, the whole village gathered around and prayed for the little white boy that God wouldn't take him to heaven yet. He was too young still. And we pulled him off with a pair of tweezers, one ant at a time. So I have a cause, and if you don't have a cause, you can join me in this cause. I step on every ant I see. Yeah, yeah. It'll take me a lifetime to get even with those guys. I will go all the way across the street if I think there's an anthill on that side. So if you, if you don't have a cause, you can join me in this one. <laughs> Step on those rascals. My sister and I were the only white children for 100 miles, for, the, for a day's drive in, in, in any direction. Um, my father was a missionary linguist. We, he uh, translated scriptures, put one of the African languages, the Sinophil language, into writing and then translated scriptures. From the time I was seven years old, I was teaching Africans how to read their own language you can imagine at age seven, I could barely read myself, but I could read better than they could. And the only thing there was to read was the scriptures that my father was, uh, was translating uh, along the way. They had a saying in my little village, it takes the whole village to raise the children. And this wasn't a plaque on the wall. This is how everything lived. Uh, every child in the village belonged to every grown-up. This is why when I see a church like Elements who so loves its children, it just warms my heart because I know what that can do for the heart of a child when you live in a place where everyone around you uh, thinks that you belong to them. I never fell down as a little guy without some African woman swooping in, picking me up, drying my tears from my eyes. I didn't get away with a lot of mischief because the stupid skin stood out in the midst of my little (laughs) no-nos. I remember the chief of our village one time, uh, as we all gathered around a campfire in the evening, he says, you know what? I'm noticing that the goats are kind of skinny this year, and it's not because we're in a drought. It's because the little boys are chasing them all around the village. And in the swirling red dust of the Sahara Desert, I don't know who all the culprits are, but I know this. The little white boy is one of them. (laughs) And I'm like, so I prayed every night earnestly. Lord, I know you can do this. You parted the Red Sea. You brought down the walls of Jericho. In the morning when I wake up, let my skin be black like all my friends. And it'd be the first thing I would check every morning. And I'm like, ah, still white. (laughs) But maybe tomorrow. They loved on me as one of their little boys in that village. They taught me what they taught their children. Uh, I learned how from the, from the village, I learned how to hunt. I learned how to fish. I learned how to farm. Uh, by the time I was 15 years old, uh, I was a fully trained peasant farmer. Could easily have raised a family out on that Sahara Desert. They taught me the things that I value most, they built my character, they shaped my heart, they, they built up my spirit. What I learned from the poor, I used to tell when I was president of Compassion, I used to say, everything I need to know to lead this worldwide ministry, I learned from the poor in this tiny little village. And so I tried to drive a worldwide organization with these principles. One of the things I learned was love. Doesn't matter how poor you are, you can still have love. And the amazing thing is the more of it you give away, the more of it you get. Back. I learned that joy is not dictated by circumstances. Joy is a decision you make about how you're going to live in your world in the midst of your hurts. I learned that about hope as well hope not dictated by circumstances. Over here on this side of the pond, we tend to be hopeful when we have more assets than liabilities, right? Nah, it's the other way around with the poor all the time. But they learn to hope in one another. They learn to hope when they take the Jesus road in in Jesus. And I learned to be hopeful. A leader has got to be the last one to give up hope and the first one to see the sun come out from behind the dark clouds. I tried to lead like that. I learned how to give and I learned how to receive. The worst thing you could be in my village was selfish. We're poor as we can be but selfishness was unacceptable. To withhold from your brother in his time of need was unacceptable behavior. The worst thing you could have done to me as a little six-year-old would have been to give me two pieces of candy because I would have looked and thought, well, you put them in my hand. You probably meant one for me, but surely not both. And now what am I going to do? One piece of candy and all these friends. I learned from the poor that if God made you strong, it's not for you. It's for you to be there for those who are weak. And if God made you brave and courageous, it's not for you. It's for you to be there for those who are frightened. And they shaped my heart around these values. And I do not even subtly, now that I lead ministry to the poor, I do not even subtly look downward toward the poor. I look upward toward the poor. And I tell our worldwide staff, you need to earn the right to even be around them. When you are around them, God gave you two ears and one mouth. And they should be used in about that proportion. Twice as much listening as speaking. But we were poor. And there's no getting around that. I I hate poverty. If poverty and I were two little boys duking it out on the playground, and the teacher jumped in between us and said, Hey, who started this? I could honestly say, He did. He attacked me when I was small. He broke my heart. All I'm doing with the rest of my life is fighting back. Because we were vulnerable, we were agriculturalists. We were hunters. We were fishermen. We could not risk anything going wrong. We didn't have fancy seed. We didn't have uh, we didn't have fertilizer. We didn't have pesticides. We didn't have money for irrigation. It had to rain when rain was supposed to be there, and we walked this tightrope. I remember one year when uh, we were just about to harvest our corn, we looked off across the Sahara Desert, and in came what appeared to be a big black rain cloud. We thought, my goodness, it's going to rain right at harvest? But as it got closer to our horror, we discovered that's not rain. Those are grasshoppers. Those are locusts. And they came unto our village just as we were going to harvest. They were on the ground for two hours. We beat them with everything we could to get them to fly. When they finally flew away, they took everything green with them. So the migrating animals left. The swamp dried up, and we barely survived. We ate termites for a year until the next harvest could possibly come around. The next year was an important formative year in my life. I've written a book, uh, Just a Minute, and in it I make the case that a spirit of a child is a lot like wet cement. It doesn't take any time or effort to make an impression that could very well last for an entire lifetime. And one of those moments came the next year when measles, measles swept through our village. Measles that should keep children out of school for a few days, but because we were weak already from the, from the, uh, from the diet that we were eating, uh, in two weeks, one out of every four of my little buddies died, and many of them right in my arms. And I remember running to my father, and he was translating Scripture in this hot tin shed, and I remember running to him, and he looked up, and I said, Daddy, I got a question for you. And he said, What is it, son? And I said, when do you think it'll be my turn? And he said, your turn for what, Wes? I said, my turn to die, Daddy. All my friends are dying. When do you think I'll die? And I will never forget this element. It was one of those moments because my father said, oh, son, you don't have to worry about that. And I said, how do you know, Daddy? How do you know? I'm frightened. And he said, well, roll up your sleeve. And he said, those little scratches on your arm, those are called vaccinations. You got those in America before you came here, so you wouldn't get these kind of diseases. And I'll never forget this moment, because as I was standing there, all of a sudden, my father's face grew blurry through my tears. And it was the first time I realized, this world isn't fair. And I said, Daddy, that's not fair. Why do I have scratches on my arm? Why don't all of my friends have scratches on their arms? Imagine my joy 50 years later to be Compassion's president, putting scratches on the arms of tens of thousands of children every year. I know where that came from. By the time I was 15 and left that country, Ivory Coast, uh, half of my boyhood friends had died. And we buried them the same day they died. We had no choice. There was no electricity, no embalming. The village gathered around the bonfire, and we celebrated the life of each of these little children. And we were brokenhearted. I was one of the younger ones, so I had to go to bed early. And I would lie in my little hot cot. I mean, the tropical night I'll never forget. And I would just cry. I could listen to the drums. The drums, as good as your drummer was this morning... Those drums for us were not just rhythms. That's how we communicated from village to village. So even lying in my little bed, I couldn't escape the funeral services of my little buddies. And I would listen to their stories of what they wanted to become, and how heartbroken people were at the loss of them. And I would, uh, I would, I would cry myself to sleep. I would lie on my back, and I would, my eyes would fill with tears, and it would trickle down, and my ears would fill with tears, and it would spill onto my pillow. And eventually, I would drift asleep, but a few days later, you would be another one of my little buddies. And I thought that's how the world is. I saw it in the animal kingdom. The young and the elderly are vulnerable, and they die, and that's probably how it's supposed to go. And then at age 15, I come to America for the first time. 15 years old, what do I see in America? The first place I see is Manhattan, New York City. Can you imagine going from a dinky little village to New York City, My first day in New York is actually where the book Too Small to Ignore begins, and then I backtrack to growing up through the village. But my first day in America, I see people walking down the sidewalk with these big paper bags in their arms, and I look inside, and it's food. And I'm like, whoa. So being a pretty darn good little hunter, I'm backtracking this stuff. Where's this coming from? I'll never forget when I came to my first grocery store. And I walked inside, and here was all of this food. And a whole row was nothing but breakfast cereals. Who knew there was more than oatmeal? I had no idea. And it hit me, there's plenty of food. And I looked next door, and uh, it was a pharmacy. And I, I asked in my broken English, what all this? And he said, it's medicine. And with a trembling heart, I said, you have vaccination? And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't sell it to people like you, little guy, but we sell it to doctors. Yeah, there's, it's in the freezers in the back. Plenty. And it hit me. None of them needed to die. There's plenty of food, and there's plenty of medicine. And I went, and I walked, and I sat outside on the curb in front of this store, and I just wept, and I wept. Suddenly, I realized all that childhood sorrow, all those tears. Didn't need to happen. And it was New York City, so nobody so much as stopped to say, are you okay, little guy? I mean, it was New York, and I ran out of tears. And uh, I finally began just sitting there watching them. And I saw these fancy shoes and these watches, and, and I saw the, uh, the fancy purses, and I thought, what is wrong with you people? You have all of this, and you don't care. And I went into a rage that lasted all through my high school years. Finally, in college, I'm, uh, I'm, st- I'm starting tutoring programs in Chicago. I'm going to Moody Bible Institute, and I'm starting tutoring programs in the ghettos of Chicago. And uh, that was where I first, it was in the mid-60s, first learned the word uh, African-American. And I thought, wait a minute, I think I'm African-American. <laughs> what? what I discovered is these precious kids that the school system was failing and they needed to catch up. And the path out of there was not drugs, prostitution, and sports. You could be something, but you need the basic literacy and numeracy, and you need a tutor who believes in you and encourages you. So I had to raise my own money for this program, and as I talked about this need and I tried to raise money, I I discovered it was easy to raise money in America. And what I discovered is this epiphany is these people, it's not that they don't care. They don't know. And when they know, they really, really care. There's probably never been a nation in all of history as generous as the American people. And so I thought, wait a minute, I've had it wrong all this time. So I know this end of this bridge. I know children in poverty. I know what it does to them. I know their families. I know their little churches. But now I know these people. I know their language, their culture, their values. I know their needs. They may have a little more money in their pocket, but they need hope and they need love and they need joy. And these people need a little bit of that money so they can feed their families and help their children. And I thought, whoa, somehow I got to use my life to be a bridge between these two worlds. What does that look like? What do I do? And I thought, I don't want to be an ambassador. I don't want to work for the United Nations. And I didn't know what to do until about that time I stumbled onto a little storefront in Chicago about the size of a 7-Eleven. And uh, it said Compassion International. And I walked in there just like I did the pharmacy and I said, what all this? <laughs> what, do, what, do you, what do you do? And they explained to me, Oh, what we're fighting is poverty, and the way we're doing it is reaching out to little children in poverty with their families, with their little local church. And people across on this side of the country are the ones who are doing the link. They're kind of like good Samaritans. They're the ones who say to compassion, take care of this little child for me, and I'll pay. Luke 10 is the story of the Good Samaritan. This is Jesus' answer to how are we supposed to live in a hurting world? He comes up with the story of the Good Samaritan. And he says, essentially, so the, you know, the government passed this guy by, the church passed this guy by, but here came an ordinary person, a Samaritan, and he had the good sense to go to an inn, and he said to the innkeeper, you know what? You've got the facilities. You've got the time. You've got the expertise. I'll make you a deal. You take care of this guy for me and I'll pay. This was right out of the heart and mind of Jesus. It didn't really happen. It was his imagination of how do we live in this hurting world. And he ended the story with, so go do the same thing. And I thought, oh my goodness, they are already doing in a very, very small way what I think needs to be done. I don't have to go start some organization. I'm going to join them. And so I joined them 40 years ago. We had 25,000 children sponsored at that time. Today, it's a million eight hundred thousand children. It's been said, "Yeah, that's that's for you, Lord." It's been said, "All that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing." And I've discovered all these years, good people do nothing for only two reasons: number one, they don't know what to do, and number two, they don't know who to trust. And what we've tried to do at Compassion is present a program that anyone can do. Young children can do this with their, with their babysitting money. My daughters have done this with parts of their offering since they were tiny little girls. And we have tried at Compassion to be a trustworthy organization. Charity Navigator uh, raises us as, as the top 1% of all nonprofit organizations, you, organizations you can trust to do what they say they do. Even better than those guys, I love the fact that 9,000 sponsors went overseas last year to see for themselves, to meet their children face to face. And I'm noticing uh, this morning after the first service, a lot of uh, the children available to be sponsored today are from Bolivia. I spent all last week in Bolivia. These little children you're looking at, I had them on my knee, on my lap just last week. And what a cool thing when a, a, this many people in a church, all sponsored from the same country, man, you can organize trips and Compassion will help you. Go down there, see it, meet these, uh, meet these little ones. Centered on Christ, we are committed to the local church. I can tell you with absolute certainty that 434 children are going to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior today. 434. Yeah, that happened yesterday, that will happen tomorrow, it happens every day of the year among our 1.8 million. You want to get a mental picture of that? Look around you, look at every seat in this auditorium, the number of children who will accept Jesus Christ as their Savior this week, between now and the next time you gather in this sanctuary, would fill every seat in here four times over. Now the job is to disciple them to reach their full God-given potential. And that's where sponsors come in as so incredibly important. You see, the worst thing about poverty is this message of hopelessness. It it gets into the heart of even a little tiny child that says, give up, nobody cares, nothing's ever going to change, nobody's coming to your rescue. And even little tiny ones will begin to believe that lie. And you can see the sparkle gone from their eyes. You can see the hope gone from their eyes. And what we try to do with that little local church is we try to get in there before they buy into that worldview. And we say, that's a lie. You're wonderful. You're beautiful. We believe in you. God loves you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows the pattern of your fingerprints. And when somebody all the way from Wyoming joins that course and says, yeah, and I'm looking at your grade cards. Yeah, I'm looking at your picture. I'm praying for you. We have just got the most powerful weapon against poverty at our disposal. And you can do this from from here. Uh, One of my favorite stories of compassion is, uh, is a sponsor who happened to be a school teacher in England. And um, she was assigned a little boy from Kenya, uh, who was on this path of "I don't matter and nothing will ever change for me." He, his first letter to his uh, school teacher, uh, sponsor was. uh, You can see from the picture of me that they sent that I'm not very handsome. Well, she wrote back and she says, "I totally disagree. I've got your picture on my desk in my classroom. I look at it every day. I think you're very handsome." He says, wow. And so a little while later he writes back and he says, Well, you can see from my report card, I'm not very smart. And that was a little hard on a teacher, but she said, You know what? You're as smart as you need to be to do whatever God wants you to do. This little guy begins to believe in himself because somebody way over there is telling him that he believes that she believes in him. So he starts looking for what is he good at. And uh, he writes when he's eight years old. Well, guess what? I just learned. I just learned I can run faster than anybody in my classroom. There's 20 of us, and I'm the fastest runner. And she wrote back, well, <laughs> that's cool. It's good to be good at something. If you can run, run. So he believes her, and he writes back a few years later, well, guess what now? I run faster than anybody in my, cl- in my school. And she says, it sounds like you found something you're good at. Be a good runner. Just be your best at whatever you do. So he listens to her, he runs to church, he runs to school, he runs to the store. A few years later, he writes back and says, well, guess what now? I run faster than almost anybody in Kenya. I'm on the Olympic team. The Olympics were in Korea that year. And uh, he went over there, one of the first marathon runners, and uh, he won a medal. And they thought, let's let's rotate him back to Kenya by way of England and let him meet this sponsor of his. So this big, tall Kenya marathoner comes to this little cottage. She's now retired. She lives in the south of England. He can't even get in her door. He's so tall. He has to stoop down, and he stands up. Here's this little little, little old lady in in a wheelchair. She can no longer walk. And he holds up his Olympic medal, and he says, this is for you. And she said, no, 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 no. I watched you run this time on television. You're so fast. I saw where you were. You are so fast. I am so proud of you. I'm just so proud of you. And he said, no, stop. He said, if you hadn't believed in me when I was eight years old and told me to run, I never would have run. This is your victory. I wish I could tell you that every child on the table out there has the DNA to be an Olympic champion. I think we would have some sort of holy stampede. I want the marathon runner. They—they <laughs> uh, they aren't, but I can promise you this: every one of them has been knit in their mama's womb by God Almighty. Their DNA for some purpose, and they are just waiting for the chance to be released from poverty, in Jesus' name. And you can do this if you could simply write a letter that says, "Don't give up. I believe in you." Wow, look at your achievement. You ought to be one of us. And those of you who are already, I thank you. Well, that's why I care. Now you know my mission, you know my calling, you know my cause. Uh, By the way, everybody needs a cause, something more noble than stepping on ants. Uh, Everybody needs something that moves them deeply, something that is worthy of your time and your talent and your treasure, something that moves you so deeply that it can move you to tears in 30 seconds, either tears of great sorrow at the need or tears of great joy at the victories. And I'm cutting you a lot of slack here because it doesn't take me more than 10 seconds. All I got to do is stop and think of my, of my village. And if you're sitting there now and you say, I don't think I have a cause like that. I beg you, do not live life like that. We do not have time on this little campsite for you to be treading water, stuck in second gear. It doesn't have to be my cause, but find a cause that is worthy of you. So my prayer, of course, is that many of you will join my cause, that many of you will um, reach out and sponsor a child and breathe hope into their lives today. Element, I know your hearts. I see what you do with your own children. That's your Jerusalem. Oh, you're doing that well. You should. Your Judea, your Samaria, it's probably Colorado, the United States. But what we can offer at Compassion is the uttermost parts of the earth. All one sentence from our Lord. Would you pray with me? Element, my prayer is that you will find your cause You'll find your your passion, your mission, your calling, and oh, I pray that you will throw yourself into it with everything that you have. And then in the midst of doing this ministry you've been called to, I don't know, as you serve that bowl of soup, as you give that hug, as you write that letter, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, when we least expect it, suddenly a trumpet blast. And out of nowhere, you will look up and you will see the sky roll back like a scroll. And we will go home, guys. Finally, finally home. Home where there's no more death, no more tears, no more sickness, no more sorrow, not even any more tears. Revelation 21, 4. God says, I reserve the right to wipe the last tears from their eyes. Do you realize what that means? That means the hands that knit you lovingly in your mama's womb. Those hands are waiting to welcome you home. It means the hands that picked you up the last time you fell down with a broken heart and you didn't think you could go on. Those hands are waiting to wipe the tears from your eyes. It means the hands that took the nails on the cross to redeem you are waiting to wipe the tears from your eyes. And I don't know about you, but I cannot wait for that day. I cannot wait. I'm not going to walk. I'm going to run into the arms of my Lord, my Savior, my Redeemer, my King. And I hope I arrive in His arms panting. And I cannot wait for Him to wipe the tears from my eyes. Way too many tears for one lifetime. But my prayer for you is the same as the prayer for myself, that as he wipes the tears from my eyes, he notices he also needs to wipe the sweat from my brow. Because I lived the life that he called me to live. I fought for those who couldn't fight for themselves. I spoke up for those who couldn't speak up for themselves. I blessed the least of these with my life, your life, until I was suddenly and wonderfully interrupted By heaven, oh, element, may it be true for you. May it be true for me. And I'll see you soon in the kingdom of God. Bring lots of children with you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.